0: Hello, and welcome to The Crossing Church. Would you keep that applause going as we welcome our South Shore campus and our Planned City campus and everyone watching online, around the world and at home. We're so glad you joined us today. We're so glad you're here, here at our Tampa campus as well. Well... We want to give you a quick update on Pastor Greg. He is doing well, praise God. He has another follow-up appointment this week, and we believe that in the next few weeks we'll see him again here very soon. Would you tell them how much you appreciate him? Pastor Tamara, we love you. We are praying for you. We can't wait to see you back here. So it's been a crazy year, hasn't it? It feels like it's been a crazy week, too. And you know, before we jump into the series and today's message, I just felt like to read just a couple verses from the words of Jesus Christ. And as I read this verse, I want you to take it as encouragement as you find peace and rest even in this season. And when Jesus spoke these words, he wasn't speaking to a Christian audience or a Jewish audience. He was actually speaking to an unrepentant generation, people who didn't even believe he was the Christ yet. And so with that in mind, I want to read these verses from Matthew chapter 11, starting with verse 28. It says this, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that there's no prerequisite to that statement. Jesus said, come to me, whether you believe in me or not, whatever situation you're in, there's nothing you have to do, nothing you have to say, no prerequisite to coming to him. He just says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so I want to start from that point as we pray. Let's pray for our pastor. Let's pray for this weekend, and let's pray for our nation. will not you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, first of all, we worship you. We give you glory and honor because you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are unchanging and all-powerful, and we put our trust in you. God, we pray for our pastor and his family. We pray you continue to bring healing, a swift healing. We pray you relieve pain and you give rest, Father, and that you bring him back to full strength quickly. And Father, we pray for this weekend. We pray for our president, Donald Trump. We pray a quick recovery for him as well. We pray for everyone who is suffering from COVID-19, a swift healing, a swift recovery, Father. And we pray that your presence, we thank you that it's here even now. And we pray that you speak, you speak at all of our campuses online, you speak today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So I'm excited because I get to begin a new series this month. We're talking about realignment. And so I love this graphic because, I don't know, if you're a little OCD like me, that E probably bothers you, right? You're like, just get it down. So we're talking about realignment. And the big idea is this. In the presence of many redefining voices, what does God say? In the presence of many redefining voices, what does God say? And so as I was thinking about that word realignment, I started thinking about, well, what's the cost of being out of alignment? I was driving down the road yesterday, and I saw a sign from one of those tire and oil change places, you know? Uh, the one where they hit your bumper when they change your oil? No, just kidding. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at the sign outside, it said free alignment. And what are they talking about? They're talking about we're going to align your wheels, right? Because what happens when your wheels are out of alignment? You start veering, right? You veer to one side of the road or the other. And so there's a cost to being out of alignment. And then I thought about a chiropractor. He tries to put your spine into alignment. Because if it's out of alignment, what happens? Pain, you experience discomfort. And so there's always a cost of being out of alignment. And so my challenge for this opening weekend is this. We must realign to the moral standard. We must realign to the moral standard, which is God. I think on an individual level, on a community level, and on a national level. We must realign to the moral standard. In an effort to justify all the things we desire and want to do, we as a nation have placed feelings as the compass for morality. We have placed whatever we feel, whatever we desire, whatever we think is right, is actually right. We have placed ourselves in the position to dictate right and wrong. I thought about this verse from Isaiah 59 to describe the season in our nation. Isaiah 59, 14 says this Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public square. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. I can't think of a better phrase to say truth has stumbled in the public square. And I also find that part of the verse so interesting. It says, he who departs from evil makes himself prey. Think about anyone who has stood up for morality in our nation recently. Anyone who has said this is wrong and this is sin. They get piled on by social media, by celebrity culture, by the news media. To say something is wrong, you're making yourself prey. I believe that's what Isaiah was prophesying even about today. Our culture says what you feel is true, and more importantly, what you feel is right. I saw these images on social media recently, and you can see this all the time, like this first one. It says, if it makes you happy, it doesn't have to make sense to others. Isn't that an interesting phrase? But see how happiness is now the highest good. Not doing what is right and doing what is moral, but my own happiness. And go to the next picture. This one is an even more dangerous idea. Feel your feelings. They're not wrong. Feel your feelings, they're not wrong. This is the voice of culture. This is what it's saying today. Your feelings are not wrong. But let me tell you, if you feel like lying, your feeling is wrong. If you feel like cheating, your feelings are wrong. If you feel like watching pornography, your feeling is wrong. We cannot justify what is right by what we feel. And maybe you've even heard this from friends or family members. They'll say, don't push your morality on me. That's fine for you, but not for me. That's your truth, but not mine. Does this sound familiar? There's actually a name for this in philosophy. It's called moral relativism. This idea that we dictate what's right and wrong and what we feel, either as an individual or as a society, dictates morality and this idea is called moral relativism and in the next few moments I want to show you why this is so contradictory and why it leads to destruction. I think the motivation for this thinking is this, we don't want to feel convicted that our actions are wrong and we don't want to feel bad about holding others accountable. We don't want to feel bad for our actions and we don't want to feel bad about holding others accountable. And so we enter this place where we don't want to tell someone they're wrong. And so we say, well, they feel it. So it must be okay. They desire it. So I guess it's fine. I thought, I searched scripture to see where is this idea. And it's funny, it's all over scripture. If you look in the Old Testament over and over again, the Israelites would serve God and then they would stop and do what they thought was right. So this verse in Judges 17, 6, I think describes it wisely. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did, was, did what was right in his own eyes. I think it's so interesting that it says, when there is no king, people do what they think is right. And you see, as a nation, we have removed God from the place of dictating morality, and so we do what is right in our own eyes. I want to read this quote from a famous Christian philosopher and theologian. I'm not going to tell you when it was, but I want you to think about our culture today and what this means for us. It says this, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, God. We are on the road to producing a race of man too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table, as spoken by G.K. Chesterton in 1908 in his book, General Orthodoxy. What is he saying? We used to live in a place where we were doubtful about our own actions, where we would double check. We would say, is this thing actually right? Is what I'm wanting to do morally okay? We used to be modest in our actions, but firm in truth. But now it's switched. We're now modest in our belief, and we don't want to offend. We don't want to push God on other people. So we become modest in our beliefs, but firm in our feelings and what we feel is right. That is our nation today. I'm not sure if it was Marvin Gaye or Jiminy Cricket who said it first. (laughs) But someone led Pinocchio astray when they said, let your conscience be your guide. It's not a valid moral law. It's not a valid system for dictating morality. If you ever hear someone like celebrity culture on social media say, follow your heart, remember this verse from Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. And incurable, who can understand it? The heart is more deceitful than anything else. But here's a problem with moral relativism. If you place right and wrong in the essence of feelings and whatever we feel is right, if you drill down far enough, even searching your own heart or even if asking someone else, eventually you will find some subject, some topic where they will say, actually that is wrong for everyone no matter what. But you see, as soon as you make that statement, as soon as you say this is wrong for everyone, you've immediately undergr- you've kicked the feet out from moral relativism. You can't say that something is right or wrong for everyone if you think it's all dependent on feelings and opinion. And so this idea has actually come into the educational system here in America. It's called values clarification, and it's taught to teachers and faculty and staff of schools. And so I want you to read this example of what happens when a teacher tries to impose moral relativism in the classroom. Read this with me. Philosopher Christina Hoff Summers exposes the moral confusion of values clarification in a true story she relates. This is a true story. One of my favorite anecdotes concerns a teacher in Newton, Massachusetts who had attended numerous values clarification workshops, moral relativism workshops, and was assiduously applying its techniques in her class. The day came when her class of sixth graders announced that they valued cheating and wanted to be free to do it on their tests. The teacher was very uncomfortable. Her solution, she told the children that since it was her class and since she was opposed to cheating, they were not free to cheat. Quote, in my class, you must be honest, for I value honesty, but in other areas of life, you may be free to cheat. comes from the book Relativism by Francis J. Beckwith. You see the contradiction. This teacher is trying to instill this belief system that if you feel like something is right, you should be able to do it. And from the mind of children, sixth graders, they say, well, if that's the case, we think we should cheat. And so then you're stuck in a contradiction, a conundrum that teacher can't impose morality, and if she does, she's contradicting herself. Moral relativism is like having your feet firmly planted in midair. It's like having your feet firmly planted in midair. And so to illustrate this again, I have a, a meter stick. For the benefit of everyone not in the U.S., I used a meter. That's a joke, right? Imperial metric? Anyway. So when you have a meter stick, it's 100 centimeters, And it doesn't matter how you feel about it, whether you like this distance or not, this is the measurement. And so if someone's building a house and the builder on this side says, I'm going to go by the standard, but the building, uh, builder on this side of the house says, I think a meter is 75 centimeters, you're going to have a lopsided house. And even if I go on this side and I try to make 75 centimeters stretch out and I write a different law, a different legality of what a meter is, it doesn't change. The meter is unchanging. I want to tell you, just because the law says something, just because something is legal doesn't make it right. You can't rewrite morality. And you know, it's funny, we don't believe this in many areas of life. If you have a prescription from the doctor and it says take two pills a day, you're not going to say, I feel like taking eight pills a day, you're going to have a problem. You don't see the gas gauge in your car on E and it's blinking the light at you and say, I feel like my tank is full. I'm going to see you on the side of I-4 on my ride home today. <laughs> so we understand that there are absolutes. We understand that some things are right or wrong no matter what. For this, I give you this verse, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For I, the Lord, do not change. If there are such a things as moral values and duties that do not change, if there is, in fact, something, even just one thing you believe is wrong for everyone all throughout time, then it must be because it is grounded in some eternal moral lawgiver, and that is God. For He says, I, the Lord, do not change. And that is why morality does not change. I've also heard this from atheists or agnostics trying to say that we are getting better as a moral society. They would say the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. They say the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I find this so interesting. Because to say you are bending towards something, you are assuming there is something to bend towards. If you're saying we're getting closer to a moral ideal, then you're admitting there is some moral ideal to aspire to. So to say we are bending towards justice, they are assuming there is some moral lawgiver, but they deny it. I also have this objection. The last hundred years has been the most murderous, bloody, and genocidal that we've ever seen in the history of the world. Who is to say then that we are getting better morally? I remember I went to Israel and in Jerusalem, they have the Holocaust Museum. And let me tell you, there is nothing that can prepare you to see the video footage they have of what actually happened in World War II. It makes the movie Schindler's List look tame, like PG movie. It's incredibly horrific. And you see these actions, and these were not done by some alien race. This was done by human beings, an entire country convinced that morality had changed, led by one man, which led to the death of 6 million Jewish people. I stood outside the concentration camp in Buchenwald, in Weimar, Germany, and you can see the picture here. This is the front. This is the concentration camp where thousands of Jews would stay here. And in the next picture, you can see the electric fence that surrounded the entire concentration camp. Soldiers had to stay far away lest they be damaged and hurt because of the fence. This is what happened just 80 years ago. Just 80 years ago, this is what happens. Do not tell me that we are improving morally as a world or as a nation. During this period of time in World War II, there was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian man living in Germany, in Berlin during World War II. He helped some Jews escape, and he was very much against Hitler. He even was involved in some assassination plots. And he says this, The ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children. The ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children. I want you to think about today in our nation, here in America, what world are we leaving to our children? What are we teaching our children about right and wrong? What are we teaching them that if they feel a certain way, then they can do a certain thing? This idea, this moral relativism is going to lead to destruction. We must stand against it. I'll also quote Huckleberry Finn in that book they they got it right the runaway slave Jim continually tries to tell Huckleberry Finn why slavery is wrong and he says this just because you're taught something's right and everybody believes it's right it don't mean it's right just because you're taught something's right and everyone believes it's right it don't mean it's right and so with that in mind I want to challenge you in three ways I'm going to challenge the skeptic, those who are searching for truth, hopefully, and also for the Christian. Number one, my first challenge, will you honestly search for truth in this culture? Will you search for truth amidst this world of moral relativism? Will you honestly search for truth? As I was searching for an illustration in Scripture to describe this, I came across Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is in his earthly ministry and he's preaching and he's teaching, and the, Sarah, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the high priests, they always try to trip him up. Let me tell you, Jesus was pretty slick. <laughs> he always knew how to answer them, how to trip them up, because he saw the heart. Jesus always saw the heart. And so watch this exchange in Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 23. It says this, When Jesus entered the temple complex, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? I want to stop there for a moment. People who are obsessed with power will always question another authority. You see these high priests, they didn't like that Jesus was speaking with authority. And so they tried to constantly trip him up. So they asked him, Who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question, and if you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Where did John's baptism come from, from heaven or from men? And he's talking about John the Baptist who came before Jesus to prepare the way. Now watch this. They began to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the crowd because everyone thought John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's so slick. (laughs) You know, and just a word, too, as Christians, we need to be quick on our feet. Not to be tricky or anything like that, but we need to have an answer to give or to know how to ask a good question. And so Jesus asked this question because he knows these high priests don't care about the truth. They're not actually looking for the truth. They're just there to trip him up. And so he does that. But I want you to see why these religious leaders didn't answer. They were afraid of the crowd. One of the reasons why they didn't answer was because they were afraid of what the crowd would do to them. It's amazing how just in the past few years, I've seen so many people who claim to be Christians. I'm talking big, influential Christian music artists, sports people, uh, stars who claim to be Christian. But they will make a stand for morality. They'll make a stand about what is right and wrong. Then they'll get piled on and what happens the next day. They issue an apology video, and they say, I didn't really mean that. What I actually meant is this and this and that. Let me encourage you. You cannot be afraid of the crowd. If we are going to stand and make a difference in this world for the name of Jesus Christ, we cannot be swayed by the crowd. We cannot be afraid of what they can do to us or say to us. We have to stand strong. We cannot be afraid of the crowd. And so I encourage you, maybe those who are searching, those of you who are skeptics, genuinely search for truth. Don't just search for ways to trip somebody up. Don't just search for ways to justify doing what you want to do. Genuinely search for the truth. Number one, will you search for truth? Number two, will you receive the truth? Will you receive the truth? You know, we can hear the truth, but we have to receive it in order for it to change our life. We can hear it, we can see it, but we have to receive it. So as I was thinking about this, an illustration from Scripture, I went to the Old Testament, 1 Kings, in chapter 12. Israel is divided into two kingdoms at this point. You have Jeroboam, the king of the north, and then you have Rehoboam, the king in the southern part of Israel. And Jeroboam in the north, he wanted power. He wanted influence. He wanted to be the king of the entire country. And so he creates an altar of convenience in the northern part of Israel. You see, every year Jewish people had to bring a sacrifice to Jerusalem. And if you lived in the northern part, that's pretty far. And so the king said, I want to earn the favor of the people, get these people to like me, so I'll create an altar up here that they can come to instead of going where they need to go, and it can be an altar of convenience. But it wasn't just an altar to God. He built golden calves and idols and worshiped pagan gods. It's amazing. We actually went there when a group from the church went with Pastor Greg and Pastor Tamar to Israel. We went up to the northern part. This is in Tel Dan in the northern part of Israel, and this is the altar that Jeroboam built in northern Israel. This is the actual archaeological dig where this story happened. So he builds this altar. They're worshiping false gods. He's tricking Jewish people to bring their sacrifice here. And a man of God comes to confront him. And we pick up in 1 Kings chapter 13, starting with verse 1, and it says this A man of God came from Judah to Bethlehem by a revelation from the Lord while Jeroboam was standing beside the altar to burn incense. He gave a sign that day. He said, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar will now be ripped apart, and the ashes that are on it will be poured out. When the king heard the word that the man of God had cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Arrest him. Do you see what just happened there? Jeroboam knows the truth. He lives in the Jewish country. He is Jewish. He knows the truth. He knows what he's doing is wrong, but he doesn't want to receive it. And so when the man of God comes to convict him, he says, Arrest him. But what happens to Jeroboam? The hand he stretched out against him withered, and he could not pull it back to himself. I think if that happened more today, we'd do a lot less wrong things, amen? (laughs) You see, Jeroboam knew the truth, but he didn't want to receive the truth. And so if you want your life to actually change, if you're giving your life to Christ, you must not only hear the truth and accept the truth, you have to receive the truth. You must receive the truth. Number one, will you search honestly for truth? Number two, will you receive the truth? And finally, this is a challenge now to those who are Christians. Will you align to the truth? Will you align to the truth? You see, you can search for the truth and find it. You can even believe it and say, this is right. I believe it. I even give my heart to Jesus. But then there has to be a life change. Then you actually have to align your life, align your actions, align what you believe to be right and wrong with God himself, the one who does not change. In this verse in Second Timothy, I think it sums up this point. Second Timothy 4, starting with verse 3. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, what were we talking about before, according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. This is a verse for the church. When we begin to hear things that we don't like to hear or we hear things that might convict us or we say, oh, yeah, but that doesn't, I want to still do that thing. We have to realign. We have to move back to the standard. We have to come back to Scripture and say, what does God say is right and wrong? You know, so many people have this idea of Christianity. So is it just a list of rules? Is it just a bunch of thou shalt not and "Thee before thine except after thou and all that? <laughs> is it just a bunch of things to try not to do? No, that's not the case. I want to illustrate it like this. Maybe you don't know what this is. I I didn't know there was a name for it. But if you know what a rumble strip is, a rumble strip, you'll know what it is when you see it. So it's this part of the highway on the side, right? The rumble strip on the side of the highway, what is it for? It's to tell you that when you are losing alignment, when you're drifting off the road, your tire hits the rumble strip and it goes, right? And if you're falling asleep, hopefully it wakes you up and you realign. The point of Christianity, the point of the rumble strip is not to stay with one tire on the rumble strip. The point of Christianity is not to constantly say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Right? That's what it would feel like if we just rode that rumble strip the whole way. No, the rumble strip, the word of God, scripture, is meant to get us realigned when we start falling out of alignment. Why? Because God wants to be a killjoy? He wants to stop all your fun? No. Because God has an incredible plan for your life. God wants to do amazing things in you and through you, to your family, to your friends, to your job place. And to do that, you have to be in alignment with him. God has set these boundaries in place for everyone for all time, not to kill your fun, but to keep you in alignment with him. God says he has a plan to give you a hope and a future. And so the point is to stay on the road to live a life to the fullest that is blessed by God as you serve him. And then as you get out of alignment, it brings you back. You know, the world promises freedom in sin. The world says that if you're allowed to do whatever you want, to do aloud what feels good, if you can do all those things, then you can be free. But you're not free. You're still a slave to sin. You can see the men and women who... Followed hedonism, which is the idea that the only purpose in life is to find the ultimate pleasure. It's an empty pursuit. Even Oscar Wilde, who held to this on his deathbed, said, what was the point? That is not the point of life. Just to be free to do whatever you want means you are a prisoner in sin. Jesus promises a life free from sin. He promises a life full of his presence and his spirit. John chapter 8 verse 31 says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, if you stay on the road, you really are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, true freedom comes from the truth. Search for truth, receive the truth, and then align yourself to the truth. And God will bless your life and show you the amazing purpose he has for you in this place. Amen. And so there are many of you at our campuses, South Shore, Plant City, here in Tampa, watching online. They say, you know what, I need to realign to God's will for my life. Or maybe you've never given your life to Christ, and you're saying, I I want to start serving him. I want to give my life to him. We're going to do that even now, and we're going to do it all together. We're going to pray a simple prayer. There's nothing special about the prayer or the words. It's the posture of your heart telling Jesus, I want to serve you. That's we're all going to pray together. If everyone would bow their heads and close their eyes across all our campuses and online. And we're all going to pray this together so you're not alone. But if you want to give your life to Christ today, I want you to really pray these words. Everyone together. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. Forgive me of my sin. Teach me to follow you. And I will serve you the rest of my days. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that and you're giving your life to Christ, rededicating your life to Christ, we want you to raise your hand on the count of three just because we're not going to make you do anything, not going to make you say anything. We just want to join with you and celebrate with you. If that was you, we ask you raise your hand on the count of three. One, two, three. If that was you, let's see that hand. See the hand? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just the hands going up, just the hands going up. So many, so many. No one's looking around. We just want to give you a card. We want to connect with you. Amen? I feel like we just need to do that for another minute. Everyone, if you would keep your heads bowed and eyes closed. We don't want to embarrass you. But if you're saying, I'm giving my life to Christ today. Maybe you didn't lift your hands yet. Now's the chance. Lift your hand even now. Saying, I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ. There's another hand over here. I see that hand. I see this hand. I see hands in the back. No one's looking around. This is between you and God. This is a decision between you and him, the creator of the universe, the person who does not change. You're saying, I want to serve you even right now. Just one more moment. There's still hands up. There's still hands up. Amen. Church, would you look up here and celebrate like crazy because so many people have given their life to Christ. Praise God. Incredible. Wow. Whew. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And listen, there were so many here at our Tampa campus, and I'm sure there's many of you watching right now that said, you know, that was me. I want to give my life to Christ. Well, listen, we want to connect with you too. You can text the word Jesus to the number you see on the screen, and someone from the crossing is going to connect with you and walk with you because we want to help you on the next steps as you follow Christ. Amen. Would you stand with us here at the Tampa campus and online? We're going to worship just for another moment. And listen, if you need prayer for anything, we have our prayer partners up here. They're all masked up. They're ready to pray for you. So if you need prayer for anything, you gave your life to Christ, whatever it is, you can come up as they sing, and we would love to connect with you. Praise God. We're going to sing a quick chorus, and Pastor Wade is going to close. Lord, we worship you, Father. Come on, give it up for Jesus. Give it up for Pastor Stephen, too. Come on, what a word. Yes, Lord. Let's sing together. May your glory and your power May your majesty Flood the
1: earth. You flood the earth. God, another praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. There's a meter stick right there. If you gave your life to Christ this morning, Best decision you'll ever make. This is the best decision you'll ever make. I remember some years ago, and this is this is my encouragement. This is my extension to those that have been saved for maybe some time. I remember years ago saying a, a prayer, just like Pastor Stephen led us through, and but I never really did anything with it. I never walked it out. You couldn't really tell that I was saved. There was no really fruit in my life, and. But there were certain items in my life that would come up, certain milestones that would start happening in my marriage that uh, forced me to go back to church, right? Like I can remember getting the news that we're gonna have our first, our first child and I said, babe, we gotta go to church. I gotta get right, with Jesus. We, we laugh, but that happens to a lot of us. We wait for those moments of uh, I got to get right and then I go. And so I just want to encourage you if, if you need prayer for anything, because that was me. I said, I've never gone up front before and asked for prayer. And I went to this chapel at Fort Knox, Kentucky in 2004, some time frame. And I walked up to the pastor after service and I said, I'm about to have, we're about to have our first baby. Pray for me. I didn't know what I needed to hear, but he was in tune with the spirit and he prayed exactly what I needed to hear. So I just encourage you, if, if you're in that place, if you got a milestone, if you got a career change, if you got family change, you got life change going on, bring it up to the altar, leave it here. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to partner with you. And we'd love to hear the testimony of God moving in your life when he does, because he's faithful to do so. Well, we're gonna transition now as we bring our tithes and offerings. I'm, I'm telling you, it's getting better every week. God bless you. It is, it is worship, it is worship. And here at The Crossing, you can do that in multiple ways if you're here with us in the house. There's black boxes located all throughout our campus. You can leave it there. You can pull out your phone and text the word WE ARE CROSSING to the number 77977. And for those of you online, you can click on the give button and give that way. We're not gonna leave here until we're done praying for anything and everything you, you need prayer for, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, we thank you for the rumble strips in life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that that quiet time, Lord, where you can speak to us. And Lord, even when we don't listen, Lord, you're faithful to send a messenger. You're faithful to send a friend, a coworker, a family member, Lord, to, to get us back online. You're faithful to send a message through a pastor, a teacher, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, for all of us that are hitting those rumble strips right now, Lord, that this is the day that you would bring us back into alignment, knowing that your grace is extended to all that believe in you, knowing that your mercy is new each and every day, and knowing that your love is unconditional and that you've never left us, you've never forsaken us, and you're calling us back. I want to thank you for those that gave their lives to you today in the house and online, wherever they're at, Lord. We ask for your blessing. We ask for your protection over them now, Lord, as they begin to walk, as they begin to seek the truth that they just received here today. Lord, we pray your blessing upon our tithes and offerings. Lord, we ask for multiplication. We know, Lord, that you will use it for your kingdom. We pray a blessing protection, and covering over every family, Lord, that would give here today. We love you. We thank you. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Can we give him another praise? Yes. God bless you all. We will see you out in the lobby, and we'll see you on first Wednesday. God bless you.